Good morning again. Thanks for joining us at Prairie View Christian Church. If someone asked you, what is the single greatest thing that you have ever seen? The sun would be a really good answer. That's because according to NASA, the sun is the largest object in our solar system, comprising 99.8% of the system's mass. For comparison, if the sun were the size of a door, then planet Earth would be the size of a nickel. The sun's core is estimated to be 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Meanwhile, its surface at a meager 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit is hot enough to boil diamonds. But not only is the sun awe-inspiring, it's essential for our survival. If we get too close to it, we fry. If we get too far from it, we freeze. Without it, we die. That's why many doomsday prophets center their predictions around the sun burning out. So if you put it all together, you can understand why many in the ancient world, and some still today, would worship the sun. I mean, come on. What could possibly be greater? Open up to Joshua chapter 10. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Thank you for the beautiful weather that we have. Uh, Thank you that the sun doesn't feel quite as hot as it has the past week, uh, this morning and the next few days. Uh, But Lord, thank you for the creation that you've given us, uh, that we get to enjoy. Uh, Thank you for the ways that you take care of us, the ways that you provide for us and sustain us uh, every single day, ways that we don't think about, ways that we don't often thank you for. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity to worship you here today by name, that we know who you are because you revealed yourself to us in your word. And we have the privilege and the joy and even the responsibility to to read your word, to understand who you are and rejoice that we have the honor of knowing who you are. And even further than that, uh, we have the honor of being your children. And so, Lord, I pray that our worship would be honoring to you today. Uh, that it'd be good for us, and that you would be glorified here in this place at this time. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this church. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last time we read the book of Joshua, God's chosen people of Israel learned a valuable lesson. But they did learn it the hard way. In chapter 7, we saw that if the Israelites tried to conquer the promised land without God's presence, they had no chance. When they attacked the podunk town of Ai, a city they should have had no problem defeating, they lost. Now, if they had consulted with God before the battle, maybe they would have known that God's presence was not with them due to sin within the camp. But once Joshua and the elders of Israel realized what had gone wrong, 
and separated themselves from the sin that plagued their nation, things went much more smoothly in chapter 8. But did Israel really learn their lesson? Chapter 9 doesn't look too promising. The Israelites are deceived by some of the inhabitants of the promised land, namely a group of people called the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites had heard that Israel was coming and feared for their lives, but they took a more clever approach than walls or war. They dressed down, they made themselves look pathetic, and they told Joshua that they were from a faraway land. They begged for mercy. They offered to be Israel's servants, and the Israelites complied. Now, what's the problem with that? Chapter 9, verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions, referring to the Gibeonites, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Now, eventually the truth would come out, but Israel couldn't go back on the covenant that they had made. Like it or not, they have a new ally in the promised land. But once again, the Israelites fell into error because they did not consult God before they did something. So yet again, you have to ask. Did they really learn their lesson? Apparently not. That sets the stage for chapter 10, starting in verse 1. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Haham, king of Hebron, to Param, king of Yarmouth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying... Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmouth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Bunch of hillbillies. Verse 7. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up from Gilgal all night. 
And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haron, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haron, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. This is the first time that the inhabitants of the promised land have banded together against Israel. These five Amorite kings attack Israel's new ally, the Gibeonites, which drew Israel into a fight. But that was a bad idea. Clearly, these kings haven't learned their lesson either. The Lord is with Israel. The Lord throws their armies into a panic. The Lord literally strikes them down from above. So to say that the battle was one-sided would be an understatement. Likewise, to attribute the victory to Joshua or the Israelites would be inaccurate. This is God's victory. The most effective weapon, hailstones from the sky, could be legally classified in our day and age as an act of God. Now, of course, God's done this sort of thing before. One of the plagues that he executed against Egypt during the Exodus was destructive hailstones that somehow, coincidentally, I'm sure, struck everyone but the Israelites. That was nothing short of a miracle back then. And so is this. But if you think that the hailstones are impressive, just wait until you see the grand finale. Verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Yashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. That's an incredibly bold prayer from Joshua, isn't it? He even issues that prayer in the sight of all the people. If God does not come through, Joshua may have egg on his face. Son, stand still. I mean, shouldn't Joshua have been a bit more modest? He could have just asked for a few more hailstones or maybe even a bolt of lightning mixed in there. 
And just think of the utterly chaotic chain reaction that would occur on planet Earth if this request is actually granted. But God comes through. The sun and the moon stand still until Israel wins the battle. And we're treated to one of the most captivating miracles in all of Scripture. So it's just another rousing victory for God's people. The five rebellious Amorite kings are hunted down and killed. And as Joshua does it, he gives the people a strong reminder. One that shouldn't be hard to remember when you know that the God who controls the galaxy is on your side. Joshua chapter 10, verse 25. Joshua says to the Israelites, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And while the fighting in the promised land is not completely done, Israel continues to rack up victories in the following chapters. So much so that for much of the rest of the book, Joshua's attention shifts from conquering the promised land to settling and distributing the promised land. But let's go back to our opening question. What can possibly be greater than the sun? Joshua 10 gives us the answer. The only God of the universe. The one true God of Israel. The God we read about in this book. The book of Genesis reminds us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. He made the two great lights, the sun and the moon. Turning again back to the book of Exodus, another plague that God executes on Egypt. But again, coincidentally, I'm sure not on the Israelites. Is darkness over the land for three days. It appears that God has more control over the sun than you or I do over a light bulb. The psalmist put it beautifully. Psalm 19, starting in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The sun really is great. It really is glorious. But according to Psalm 19, it exists to give glory to God. No wonder God warns the Israelites in Deuteronomy 4 not to worship the sun when they enter the promised land, the way the inhabitants did. After all, why would you worship the sun 
when your God is so much greater. One of the greatest theologians who ever lived was a man named Anselm of Canterbury. And some thousand years ago, he famously described God as, and this is one big phrase, a bunch of words in a row, all separated by hyphens, something than which nothing greater can be thought. I'll say that again. It's something than which nothing greater can be thought. Put another way, Anselm is saying that God is that than which it is impossible to think of anything greater. If you're thinking of a God who may be exceeded by something else in greatness, you're not really thinking about God at all, is what Anselm would argue. He's greater than everything, even the sun. And yet we often find ourselves taking God's greatness for granted. As one author puts it, the transcendent, awesome God of Martin Luther and John Calvin has undergone a softening of demeanor. In other words, in our current day and age, we sometimes try to make God a little more manageable. Another author says, we must define God as the best possible. Otherwise, we are imagining a finite being, woefully limited by our own imperfections, and hence undeserving of our worship. As Augustine put it, God. Not the sun, not the moon, or anything else that we can even observe or imagine. God alone is the perfection of both beauty and strength. The perfection of both beauty and strength. And you know what's really awesome to think about? Is that this God, whose perfection of both beauty and strength burns hotter and brighter than the sun, who exists outside the bounds of time and space and is glorious beyond all compare of little old you and little old me. By faith in his son, Jesus Christ, you can call this great God your father. How amazing is that? We worship a God who is greater than the sun. Now, another question. Be honest. Do you really believe that God performs miracles? Do you really believe that? I mean, hailstones from the sky with the efficiency of heat-seeking missiles. The sun and the moon taking a break. Can God really do that? Well, if we believe that God is as great as he says he is, something than which nothing greater can be thought, then miracles don't seem all that far-fetched. If we believe that God created the world out of nothing, sent Jesus as the fullness of God in human form, had him conceived in a virgin's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then raised him from the dead after he died on a cross for the sins of the world, then giving the sun and moon a breather from rising and setting shouldn't sound all that shocking. 
This God who is greater than the sun performs miracles. But what is a miracle anyway? Theologians and biblical scholars have had a difficult time nailing down a definition. What really is a miracle? Charles Hodge once called a miracle an event in the external world brought about by the immediate efficiency of God. In other words, something that God himself directly did. Others have identified miracles as temporary suspensions of the natural order of things by God. And the sun and the moon standing still would certainly qualify. But one of my favorite attempts to describe miracles comes from G.K. Chesterton. He wrote, the most incredible thing about miracles is that they happen. The most incredible thing about miracles is that they happen. They're kind of simply just unexplainable. But it's not always easy to believe in miracles in our hyper-naturalistic, hyper-materialistic day and age. You may think of the infamous example of Thomas Jefferson's Bible. He left in all the moral teachings of Jesus, but he took out all the supernatural stuff. That was silly. That was absurd. No one can believe that stuff. We've learned so much about how the world works to the point of thinking that we can explain everything. And when we haven't seen the sun stand still for ourselves, it's easy to view a story like this as a mere fairy tale. But here's the thing. A great deal of our faith rests on the truth of miracles. C.S. Lewis once wrote, We seldom find the Christian miracles denied except by those who have abandoned some part of the Christian doctrine. The mind which asks for a non-miraculous Christianity is a mind in process of relapsing from Christianity into mere religion. Do we really believe that God works miracles? One final question. If we believe that God is greater than the sun itself, and that God has no problem performing miracles, how should that shape our prayers? How should that shape our prayers? If Joshua's prayer was so bold, sun and moon stand still, then why are our prayers often so tame? Now, it's true that prayer, like any good gift from God, can be misunderstood and abused. Jesus says in Mark 11, verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass... It will be done for him. Verses like those can be twisted and misused in harmful ways. If you're walking up to mountains 
and daring God to pick it up and throw it into the ocean just for the fun of it, then you might be putting the Lord your God to the test. We need to be careful about not misinterpreting or misapplying Jesus's words. Christians would be wise to remember the words of 1 John 5, 14, that when we pray, we ask things according to God's will. According to God's will. But we should not let a well-meaning desire to not abuse prayer to cause our prayers to be too timid. Our God is greater than the sun. Our God can work miracles. May our prayers reflect that belief. Can God heal that person on their deathbed? Of course he can. He's God. Can God take away COVID tomorrow? Yeah, he's God. And yet our prayers don't always reflect that sort of faith. Our prayers don't always reflect that belief. May we not forget that our God is greater than the sun. That our God works miracles. And may our prayers reflect that sort of faith. You know, Joshua 10 is not the only time God does something curious with the sun in the pages of Scripture. And neither is the book of Exodus. If you look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 45... We read, as Jesus hangs on the cross. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. It's kind of weird that there would be darkness over all the land from noon to 3 p.m. And yet that's what happens as Jesus is crucified. Matthew 24, verse 29, Jesus speaks of his future return And he says this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Apparently this man, Jesus Christ, the one who got crucified in Matthew 27 and promised he would return after he rose in Matthew 24, apparently this man, Jesus Christ, is greater than the Son as well. One final passage is Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 22. This is a vision of the days after Jesus's return, a vision of what we Christians have to look forward to. John writes, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The sun and the moon once stood still in the past. And one day, when we stand in God's presence, the sun and the moon won't even be necessary. That's because we'll have something. We'll have someone much better, much greater, much brighter than the sun to give us light and life. And we will be with him forever. The five kings of the Amorites learned the hard way in Joshua 10 that you don't want to be on the wrong side of the God who is greater than the sun. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you can know with confidence that this God is for you. And if this God is for you, then who can be against you? And if you're not a believer in Jesus, I invite you to trust in him. This God and all of his majesty, all of his beauty, and all of his glory has provided a way into his presence. The body and blood of his crucified and resurrected son by whom your sins can be forgiven. You can be reconciled to the God who made you. And you can be adopted into his family as a son or a daughter forever. You know, the ancient Israelites may not have known what we know. That the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around. But I pray that all of us would learn the lesson God teaches us in Joshua 10. That the sun, the moon, the earth, and everything else revolve around him. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing to think that you are greater than the sun because there's probably nothing in all of creation that we can see or feel that is more amazing than the sun. But again, this creation that we see and touch and taste and smell and hear, as great as it is, as much as it tells us about you, As thankful as we are for this creation, we also know that you are wholly, totally, utterly different than anything that we can see or taste or touch or hear or smell. You are beyond our full comprehension. You are greater than we can even wrap our minds around, greater than the sun. But Lord, again, thank you for revealing yourself to us. So that while we may never be able to truly fathom every bit of the fullness of your glory, we know enough about you to worship you. We know enough about you to be in relationship with you. We know enough about you to respond to what it is that you've done for us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would respond rightly to what it is that you've done for us. 
that you are greater than the sun, that you work miracles, and that really the most captivating miracle in Scripture is not the sun or the moon standing still, as amazing as that is, but the most captivating miracle in all of Scripture is who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And that by Jesus' body and blood, sinners like us can be reconciled to you. So Lord, thank you for that miracle that has happened. And I pray that we would give you the worship and the honor and the glory that you deserve in response. Lord, I pray that our prayers would reflect our faith in you. That we would not forget how amazing you really are. We would not try to tame you or contain you or manage you inappropriately. But that we would let you be you. That we would truly worship you for who you are, not for who we would like you to be. And that our prayers would reflect faith in a God who's greater than the sun. Faith in a God who works miracles. Faith in the God who saved us by your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, again, we love you, we honor you, we worship you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.